Welcome to School of Everything Else. Stranger Things, Part 1. Welcome to a pair of commissioned shows brought into being by Stephen Maxwell Lowe, Joel Robinson, Toby Jungius, and Nick Grugin. The show barely needs an introduction. Pretty much everyone has seen season one of Stranger Things already. And if you haven't, it's a Netflix produced show and you can catch the whole lot right now. Maybe take it in over three or four nights because it can wear you down if you attempt the binge. Although that didn't stop some people from devouring this in one very heavy day cough 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 some people forgot to watch it for the podcast until the very last minute and had to binge it you had you had the old half binge (laughs) (laughs) um so with us for this episode we have you've just heard a laura kate dale of let's play video games and podquisition and many other things on the internets hooray i'm here hello thank you for having me i'm excited to talk about some cool sci-fi adventures welcome back uh, we also have Alistair Stewart of Escape Artists, and again, many other places on the internet. Hi folks, how's it going? Hello and welcome back again. And we also have Debbie Morse of Sequentially Yours. Hello. Hello. I'm the cleric. You are. I can't, like, you, you were on our, um, what's the last thing you were on? I think it was like... A uh, series of unfortunate events. Haven't put that show oh. out yet, but that's coming. Bojack Horseman? Bojack, no, I haven't put that show out yet. That's coming. <laughs> Seriously? <laughs> the Bojack show has to be Halloween. Uh, Halloween, yes, we did uh, a whole bunch of different Halloween films. Uh, and that was released, I can't remember when we released that. <laughs> um, <laughs> Christmas? About nine months ago. That does tie in with Stranger Things, actually, because season two is going to be released around about Halloween this year, and it begins set off around Halloween the year after the events of the first one. Um, but it came out like in summertime last year. I'd forgotten that it came out that far, you know, behind. Mm. But um, yeah. Now, what with covering a lengthy and in-depth TV show with a heftier price tag for our commission this time, we're going to give our sponsors the best value we can, which is good news for fans of this show, because tonight we will be talking about the first four episodes and next week, the last four of Stranger Things Season 1. So I'll start with some written stuff because i mean this is basically just stuff off wikipedia but we can comment on things as we go along so that we're not just dictating for you stranger things was created by matt and ross duffer known professionally now as the duffer brothers the two had completed writing and producing their 2015 film hidden has anyone seen that by the way no neither either. no 
Uh, when television producer Donald DeLine approached them, impressed with Hidden Script, and offered them an opportunity to work on episodes of Wayward Pines, the brothers worked under... M. Night Shyamalan, who helped him <laughs> mentor the two so that when they finished, they felt they were ready to produce their own TV series. Now, somehow he got, like, all the good stuff went into them. Oh, my God, when was this? Was it just before he did uh, Lady in the Water? No, By the way, is Wayward Pines an alternate universe Gravity Falls? It sounds like an alternate universe Alan Wake. Either way, I've never seen it. Anyone seen Wayward Pines? Yes. Any good? It is No. Um, <laughs> so again, all the good stuff went into the duffers. A really short version of Wayward Pines is it's a really interesting idea with the single hardest left turn mid-season I've ever seen in my life. Uh, uh-huh. And it's actually a very faithful adaptation of the, the three-book series that does the same thing. But it's one of these things which is ultimately cramped, not by Shyamalan's approach, but by the fact that in order to kind of shore it up, they've thrown someone really famous into literally every second role. Oh, so okay. By the time Toby Jones turns up as Doctor Exposition around <laughs> episode six, you, you're just like, okay, this is the info dump. Fair enough, I'm out. So, episode it, six, the info dump. It, it, from like a weird academic point of view, and especially if you're a narrative structure gonk like I am, there's actually some interesting stuff to learn in there. But as a watching experience, um, no, don't. not so great. Uh, ah. That that whole casting famous people, I have to admit, part of what makes me think it might turn out really, really well is the fact that it's a cast of people I don't recognise in the slightest. Mm. So they're obviously the, their faith is in the script and the production. Speaking of it, by the way, the Duffer Brothers actually wanted to direct this upcoming uh, film version of it. They went to the studio and they hadn't produced anything big at that point and uh, the studio said now nah, you're, you're nobody's you know go away come back when you've done something so it's almost like they went you know we're gonna go away we're gonna make our own it with blackjack and hookers <laughs> and they did because <laughs> this i mean we'll talk about the influences soon but like there you know there is there is so much of a yearning to 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 I suppose not replicate so much as as to sort of capture the energy of of it in particular of of, uh, of many of like that and Firestarter. Are there's the main there's a Stephen lot King of Stephen ones. King and Stand by going me. on here. Yes, yeah. yes. Uh, the Duffer Brothers. Oh, uh, by the way, I just got the fact that Wayward Pines. I don't know why I didn't get that immediately, but yeah, uh, it sounds like it centres around a third mystery triplet of the uh, Pines twins. Uh, <laughs> that was the joke. I know. I I just got that. I'm slow, okay? The Duffer Brothers prepared a script that would essentially be similar to the series, that's Stranger Things' actual pilot episode, along with a 20-page pitch book to help shop the series around for a network. They pitched the story to a number of cable networks, all of which rejected the script. I bet they're kicking themselves now. On the basis that they felt the plot centred around children as leading characters, that was not going to work at all. Asking them to make it make it a children's show, or to drop the children and focus on Sheriff Hopper's investigation in the paranormal. You can't at all. Like, I, If there's one thing I've learnt watching Stranger Things, it's that you can't get me invested in an emotionally engaging story 
with children. It's just just physically impossible, and that's why I think Stranger Things is terrible. Yeah, people that, don't that's like. That's why you kids. got me on the show, right? To talk about how I think it's terrible. Absolutely. Uh, you sh- you need to put a kid in every Phantom Menace, otherwise kids won't like it. And you need to take the kids out of everything to do with adults, otherwise adults won't like it. Mm, absolutely. Because yeah. no adult was a kid before. No, and no child will one day be an adult. They simply sprang into being, <laughs> and they stay the same forever until they suddenly need to be marketed to in a different demographic. Any. Anyway, um, hope it, uh, Logan wasn't good at all. Oh, no, yeah, no. You, actually, speaking of, yeah, we'll get into Logan, but, like, <laughs> seeing Logan after this and then going back and seeing this after Logan, it's weird. It's like, <laughs> Yeah. I mean, it's weird anyway, but uh, in early 2015, Dan Cohen, the VP of 21 Laps Entertainment, bought the scripts to his, colli- uh, his colleague, Sean Levy. They sub- subsequently invited the Duffer Brothers to their office and purchased the rights for the series, giving full authorship of it to the brothers. See, I, I wish they would film that sort of thing, you know, for posterity, because that's something I'd really like to watch. What you don't know is that Ross Duffer was sat there with his phone going... Let me just set this up because we're about to go into a meeting with Dan Cohen. Yeah. I mean, this is how the sausage gets made. Um, Anyway, so after reading the pilot, the streaming service Netflix purchased the whole season for an undisclosed amount. Lots. Lots. The series was originally known as Montauk. You you know that Mm. it wouldn't have been as popular called Montauk. As the setting, it, it, of, yeah. I think if if the title is something that you have to wonder, do I know for certain how to spell it? Probably <laughs> not a good title for your hit new series you're trying to sell. True. Far goes easy. Montauk, not so much. As the uh, setting of the script was in Montauk, New Plus, York. You know, people would mishear it as Mom Talk. Oh God, yeah, they would. Did you see Mom Talk last night? Yeah. I, that's dude. That's <laughs> fucked up, bro. Dude, they had a whole they had a whole beast in there. It was eating kids. <laughs> and nearby sounds like mom talk to me <laughs> <laughs> anyway uh, it's, it was named after the the, the, uh, the town of Montauk and nearby Long Beach locations the brothers had chosen Montauk as it had further Spielberg ties with the film Jaws where Montauk was used for the fictional setting of Amity Island oh I see I get it okay so it's kind of like calling it um, uh, Blue Harvest or something like a little yeah, you know. a little nod, but it's also at the like, same time it's a usable location that's very evocative of like eighties, you know, and seventies. Yeah, Spielberg. It's, it's a bit like calling your um, Lord of the Rings like fantasy series New Zealand. Mm. <laughs> After deciding to change the narrative of the series to take place in the fictional town of Hawkins, uh, instead the brothers felt that they could now do things in the town, such as placing it under quarantine. Dude, spoilers that they really could not envision with a real location. With a change in location, they had come up with a new title for the series under direction from Netflix's Ted Sarandos so they could start marketing it to the public. The brothers started using a copy of Stephen King's Firestarter novel to Mm. consider the title's Mm. font and appearance and came up with a long list of potential alternatives. Stranger Things came about as it sounded similar to uh, another King novel, Needful Things. Uh (laughs) Uh-huh. (laughs) <laughs> it's almost like they were somewhat inspired by Stephen King narratively. Yeah. Isn't it just? I'm glad they didn't call it <laughs> Slimmer. Though Matt noted they still had a lot of heated arguments over the final title. I guess whichever one of the Duffer brothers said Stranger Things first is like, well, I was right. 
<laughs> the idea of Stranger Things started with how the brothers felt they could take the concept of the 2013 film Prisoners. Now, we saw this the other month, actually. We had no idea it was connected to Stranger Things. Uh, detailing the moral struggles a father goes through. This is Hugh Jackman in the film. Um, uh, when his, It's directed by Denise Villeneuve, the guy who's doing the new Blade Runner, who did... Um, Arrival. Arrival. Well, that's why I wanted to watch it because I loved Arrival yeah. and I wanted to see some of his other stuff before Blade Runner Did came out. Did not like Sicario. Prisoners was better before it started trying to fold in too much Seven for for us at least. Mm. As they focused on the missing child aspect of the story, they wanted to introduce the idea of childlike sensibilities they could offer and toyed around with the idea of a monster that could consume humans. Imagine a monster that can consume humans. Such a thing has never been thought of before. <laughs> The yes, brother. Like that, that crazy fictional uh, creature, <laughs> the lion. <laughs> <laughs> the brothers thought the combination of these things was the best thing ever to introduce, yeah, kidnapped child and a monster that consumed humans. That's the best thing ever. To introduce this monster into the narrative, they considered... How did this work out so good? They considered bizarre experiments we have read about taking place in the Cold War, such as Project MKUltra? McUltra? Anyone? Uh, MK Ultra. Okay, what's that? It was it was a real thing where they put uh, I believe they put LSD into the water supply of like places that were places that were definitely poorer parts of America, and oh. this was this was an FBI or CIA sanctioned thing where they were trying to do experiments on whether mind control was possible, and maybe LSD was part of the route to mind control being a thing. Yeah, oh, it's it's the fundamental thing shady. that uh, Firestarter uh, Firestart is based on. Yeah. Was that when... What what year would that have been? Because was that when J. Edgar Hoover was around? Uh, it was in the Cold War, that's all I know. <laughs> it, it was Cold War Mid-70s, era America. Mid-70s, I think. Mid- oh, he, that was way yeah. after him, then. I like uh, to pin yeah, everything it, evil that the government do to J. Edgar Hoover. <laughs> But yeah, it was just the, the government putting drugs in the water in the hopes that homeless people would get, like, superpowers. Jesus. Okay. There's an episode of Game Theory on it that's uh, kind of a good way to watch, good summary, kind of gets gets into it in good detail, but it's pretty, like, yeah. you can watch it in, like, 15 minutes. Okay. Also, of note, it does get cited in this first four-episode batch. There is a uh, news clipping that comes up, I think, in episode oh. four that references MK Ultra. <laughs> See, I'd never heard of it. So I'd, I'd, I'd heard of them, the government um, testing LSD on civilians. I didn't realise that they were literally drugging an entire town. Didn't they? Wasn't there something about they were giving various drugs to soldiers oh, at the end of Vietnam? Yeah, yeah. See also yeah. Jacob's Ladder. Mm. Which gave way. Well, by the way, real... this feels a bit Jacob's oh, Ladder at times. It Sorry, does. carry Go on, Alistair. Alistair. Just as a really quick aside, it's the other reason the show's original title was probably Montauk. Because. Oh. The Montauk Project, along with MKUltra, is one of the two universal catch-alls for things, basically any element of contemporary ufology. And any, and contemporary ufology is just a horrifying snake pit of charlatans, idiots, uh, credulous, genuine innocence, and people who are looking for a movie deal. Can so you I, explain I, what I, contemporary ufology is in a minute? Because I've <laughs> yes. never heard those two words together, and I'm sure I've heard the concept, but not that. Contemporary ufology is the study dated specifically since the turn of the millennium of parapsychology with a specific focus on the study of unidentified flying objects and the focus within that on their location, pattern, and origin. I think that was about 25 seconds. That's okay. Thank you. Um, 
so anyway, they, this gave way to ground the monster's existence in science rather than something spiritual. Uh, this is the government experiments. This also helped them to decide on using 1983 as the time period. It was a year before the film Red Dawn came out, which focused on Cold War paranoia. Subsequently, they were able to use all of their own personal inspirations from the 80s, the decade they were born, as elements of the series. The decade they were born. They, are they younger than us? They're, those jammy bastards They're definitely younger, younger than, than me. <laughs> yeah. Um, crafting... i got to check. i got to know. Hold on. Uh, Duffer Brothers. Okay. Well, I was born, born in 83 myself, so they're... they're they were born in 84. Point. Little spring chickens. <laughs> I'm okay. just going to sit here whistling and feeling very young. <laughs> <laughs> I like to think I have a youthful energy... The Duffer Brothers have cited as influences for the show, among other things, Stephen King's novels. No shit. Uh, films produced by... St- by the way, when I read this list, I was like, yep, 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 yep. I'd put all of these down in my notes. Uh, Steven Spielberg, John Carpenter, Wes Craven, Robert Zemeckis, George Lucas, and Guillermo del Toro. Films such as Alien and Stand By Me, Japanese anime such as Akira, I said that too, and <laughs> Elfin Light. I did not say that. Uh, video games such as Silent Hill, I said that, and The Last of Us, I didn't say that. <laughs> The brothers attributed much of the 80s feel to set and costume design and the soundtrack composers that helped to recreate the era for them. Uh, Linda Reese, the head of props, had about 220 grand of a budget, similar to most films, to acquire artifacts of the 80s using eBay, searching through flea markets and estate sales around the Atlanta area. The bulk of the props were original items from the 80s, with only a few pieces such as the Dungeons & Dragons books made as replicas. And it, actual Dungeons and Dragons books from the 80s have all fallen apart. Yeah, now. they've been torn they've been to shreds. So well thumbed. <laughs> um, uh, I noticed the. Do you remember the um, Millennium Falcon that Dustin picks up and then drops on the floor several times? Yes. Okay. I was thinking, oh, don't, don't do that with a vintage Millennium Falcon. And then I double checked it online uh, against like a free, freeze framed image, and I was right. It's the 2012 vintage reissue. So thankfully, I mean, it's still worth a pretty penny, but they weren't, you know, dropping They weren't, they weren't taking like an actual gold mine and yeah. picking it up and dropping it. <laughs> it. It would just feel like sacrilege. Don't give that to children! Certainly not Dustin. To create the, <laughs> I'm almost done on this, to create the aged effect for the series, a film grain was added over the footage, which was captured by scanning in film stock from the 80s. I did not notice that. The Duffers wanted to scare the audience, but not necessarily make the show violent or gory, something which I am eternally grateful to them Mm. for. Uh, Following in line with how the 80s Amblin Entertainment films drove the creation of the PG-13 movie rating, it was much more about mood and atmosphere and suspense and dread than they were about gore, although they're not afraid to push into more scary elements, particularly towards the end of the first season. So like that dude in Poltergeist tearing his own face off! The brothers had wanted to avoid any computer-generated effects for the monster and other parts of the series to stay with practical effects. However, the six-month filming time left them little time to plan out and test practical effects rigs for some of the shots. They went with a middle ground of using constructed props, including one for the monster whenever they could, but for other shots, such as when the monster burst through the wall, they opted to use digital effects, and it shows. Post-production on the first season uh, was completed the week before it was released. Well, they finished post-production the week before it was released on Netflix. Jeez. That's probably because they said, look, you can have it when it's ready. <laughs> okay, it's ready. Now you can have Stranger it. Stranger Things is coming uh, next week. Now! <laughs> 
Okay. So, I mean, that's enough from me. I've now I've brought you guys on because um, you're smart, you can talk without waffling, and you are very passionate about the things that you love. So, um, what we're going to do is go episode to episode, uh, and we'll spend like 20 minutes each uh, or so, uh, and. I'll ask the simple question, what struck you about this episode? Now, I suspect we're probably going to go for longer on the first one as we take in all of this detail, but um, just just go with what feels worth talking about, So, uh, and go with your notes if you have to. But what struck you about episode one, uh, which is called The Vanishing? I, I think, for me, the thing that really struck me about episode one is that... Considering how many plot threads Stranger Thing tries to introduce in its first episode, it manages to give every one of its plot threads enough meat that you have something to latch onto and that there's something interesting to follow without any of them feeling rushed or without feeling too much like it's jumping quickly point to point to point. Um, I think it does a really good job of setting up, like, this is the mystery this is your kids this is your character that's going to be the mysterious one that's a catalyst for change in the series here's the mother's perspective here's the sheriff's perspective it sets up all of these different angles really masterfully like it's not obvious that they're setting up lots of distinct threads that are all going to come together i think definitely for me it was Being that this was the second time we had watched it, um, I really was paying attention, especially the first episode, at just the details and the world feels so real. And I'm, this feels like, and it's it's also a bit personal for me because I'm from, I'm from a small town in the Midwest, not, not unlike Hawkins. And it, it feels like the town I grew up in. The, the, they're of similar size, and I've been in these houses, these basements, This I've seen this wood paneling, those light fixtures, all this kind of stuff. It just... I was instantly sucked in because it felt real. Hmm. I, 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 I'm in a weird position to, to comment on that, in that I didn't live through that era of time, nor did I live in America, so, like, it's, it's weird to say that having not lived through any of that, it feels, it still somehow feels like it looks authentic, and I don't know how to explain that. No, that's even, Yeah, even without an actual reference point, it feels like it's authentically visually designed, and I don't know how I would know that. I think they achieved that, to be honest. This was something that struck me about the the sense of familiarity that runs the whole way through it. And this is one of the ways that the, the best kind of horror works, at least for me, is that it sets up something that you know. It sets mm. up something that is familiar and that feels real, and then it twists it. And that's when, you know, you, you get that sense of having the rug pulled out from under you because something that you thought you knew inside out and backwards suddenly turns out to have something completely different and scary underneath. That's turning the world upside down. Exactly. And, yeah. Yeah, see what they did there. Um, and the, I think the, uh, the, the influences that they allowed to filter through into the setting and the characters are a really crucial part of that. And it's one of the reasons that I didn't ever... 
really feel that those influences, totally worn on their sleeve though they are, felt out of place. It didn't matter so much that I knew this story inside out and backwards because of how much Stephen King I read when I was a kid. It didn't matter that, oh look, that is pretty much an entire chunk taken straight from E.T. Because there's a there's a purpose to it. The reason was to set up this familiarity and it was really important to the way it was structured. Um, so although that all seemed pretty obvious, it was obvious that it was being done um, intentionally and with purpose and passion. I, I actually passion, have a couple yeah. of things that, that build on that. Um, the, the, I'm really glad you mentioned the chunk from ET because I really like that too. Mm-hmm. Uh, and my my partner is Californian, and she responded to that really, really strongly because that was what she was told to do. Like you, she grew up in a small town, and she was told you come home, you hear someone in the house, you run for the gun cabinet, you unlock it, you lock yourself in the shed in the back, and you wait. And the fact that it's set up that he does everything he's told and he's not an idiot and I mean my day job at the moment is half writing tabletop RPGs so obviously the D&D game has a certain resonance for me and half writing about horror fiction and the thing which I continually get with regard to horror fiction is um, it's really easy to write very very bad horror stories mm-hmm. you have to do is populate them with morons <laughs> and um, he's not a moron He's a good, smart kid who realizes something has gone sideways and goes, you know what? I know exactly what I'm going to do, and it doesn't matter. And it's exactly your point that it subverts your expectations. This isn't a story about a victim. This is a story about, or rather, this isn't a story about an unwilling or unaware victim. This is a story about someone who's doing all the right things, and it doesn't matter. So the rules have automatically changed. There's another element of the episode that I think actually really speaks to that which is Benny. I love Benny. Mm. Um, yeah. The, 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 I think he's the first character Eleven meets, the guy who runs the diner. Mm. I love Benny for two reasons. Um, firstly, I'm six foot two and, and built like a linebacker, uh, as every single flight attendant on every transatlantic flight I've ever taken reminds me of every 15 minutes. So <laughs> it's a big part of my shoulders. Yeah. And when you're my size, people have certain expectations about you. And the first is that you're probably not very bright, and the second is that you're probably not very nice. And They're so uh, wrong on both counts for you. <laughs> <laughs> um, and it meant an awful lot to me that Benny was this big, wide, like strong-looking, tough-looking guy, and his first reaction is, that's a kid who's in trouble. I need to help her out, but I also don't need to crowd her because she's probably scared shitless. And he is this tiny little character. And again, he does everything right. He's this nice guy. And I was genuinely shocked. And we both were because we watched it and we thought, oh, he's he's going to help her out. And he's been shot in the head. Oh, my God. You know, and so much of that first episode is almost structured like a two stage magic trick in that regard. Well, like you say, time and again, you get stuff that's familiar. And time and again, the stuff that's familiar gets put on its head. And it's one of the most attention-grabbing first episodes I've seen in a long time. One one thing I did really like about the setup, um, I was really dubious going into this of a show that is primarily cast with child actors, because so often that can go wrong in so many ways. Not only are, like, just as a general series-wide thing, the, the core cast of, of uh, actors in this are fantastic. All of the children are amazing. But... 
I really like how they used that D&D game at the beginning to really quickly and effectively set up the kind of people these characters are and to give you a real sense of the priorities and the ways that these different characters would respond to stressful situations. It's, would you prioritize keeping yourself safe? Would you prioritize, you know, charging forwards and trying to protect people through aggression? And the way that this they use that, like, oh, this big bad thing has turned up, what are you all going to do? allows you to very quickly say, what do each of these people prioritize in a stressful situation? Which gives you a really good insight into these characters. As we were watching, to, uh, uh, to uh, tag on to what you were saying, Laura, Karu was, was commenting, he's like, oh, he's the cleric talking about Dusty, and he's mm. concerned about, you know, do you have what you need? And Mike's clearly the leader, because he takes charge, and uh, mm. uh, Lucas is the ranger, I believe, it was what he said, but it was, it, yeah, the same, exactly, exact same thing. It's, yeah, this character does this, da, 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 et cetera, et cetera. Yeah, it, it's very, it's very telling having them start the show by being like, each of these characters has picked an archetype and a character that they want to be. And that, that just, it's such a good way to very quickly tell you a lot about these characters right off the bat. Oh, um, I, I will say that as soon as White Rabbit started up, something about my brain has... I've seen enough, um, like, scenes in movies that, like, a bolero starts small and then get bigger and bigger and bigger. And I know the structure of the song, White Rabbit. And I was like, right, um, about 45 seconds from now, shit's about to go down. So I was really <laughs> braced for this. So when this Jane Lynch-looking woman turns up outside, I'm like, well, don't trust her, don't trust her, don't trust her! Oh, you trusted her! And then it, it, it turns into... Well, I was I was really gratified by the fact that it didn't just turn into... Um, like it, it almost becomes a non-action sequence, like, you know, like something um, terrible happens, but then Elle's already gotten away. So uh, it didn't become this... Uh, what basically it turns into later on when Elle's just like cracking necks um, at the, back I, at the base. One thing I really, really like about about this series and particularly about the way it starts is that there is so much that they tell you with aftermath. Yeah. You don't mm. see exactly what happens. You know something unpleasant is going on, but it's the consequences that they hit you with, not the, oh, isn't this gross? And, oh, look, he gouged mm. his eyes out and things like that. Yeah. yeah. Because like yeah. there's there's a there's only one or two things I could maybe in this first four episodes describe as gross, and none of them, as you pointed out, are things that you actually see happen. You just see the occasionally slightly gross aftermath. Mm. I've got a, a, there are a couple of points in the uh, um, I think oh god, it's just it's just one bit really. Um, we'll talk about that tomorrow. We'll talk about that in the next episode because it actually turns up uh, in the, uh, like, I think it's the last episode. And it's only a tiny little thing, but it just bugs me. But, um, yeah, the, the fact that there's only one thing speaks very highly of the fact that they were able to do all of this uh, action, tension, horror, and, um, you know, really scary stuff without ever going over my limit, which it, it's not so much a limit of, of, of like, too extreme um, as... 
not warranted for me. Like, yeah, mm. I have very much, a, I've said this before, a juice to squeeze ratio. Like, you know, you, you need to really make it, you know, if you're going to go extreme, it really needs to be worth it. Mm. Well, the Did the story is- earn it? Oh, yeah. Exactly. Yeah. 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 But no, that's that's a really good point. I think for, for me as well, it, it, very strong um, revulsion at an effect um, or an adrenaline rush that's been provoked by uh, an action scene can actually throw me completely out of the narrative. So they had better be used very sparingly. Hmm. It's hmm. the reason why I bounce as hard as I do off very nearly everything picks up or down. Hmm. Because, with some very notable exceptions, I, I kind of view Pixar as a, as a tear factory. And there are certainly a lot of their earlier stuff. And the last thing I want to do is derail us onto this, because my my views on Pixar are unpopular, and it's not what the show is about. But my issue with them is I can see the gears. And I know exactly what you mean about when horror does that, when you know, it just throws a mindless groove at the screen in the faint hopes that you'll be shocked and, and, and you'll, you'll be shocked and disgusted. And that will convince you you're frightened as well. Yeah. Like I think the most unsettling thing to watch in this episode for me was none of the, this child's being kidnapped or anything to do with that. It was things like a mother's reaction to her missing child was really upsetting and distressing because it's just a very human, natural response to something horrible. Oh, Winona Ryder through this whole series just breaks oh, my heart. She is so fantastic, isn't she? Yes. Oh. Like some of my favorite stuff, and we'll get there in a bit, but I love the way that like this first episode starts with this whole thing of she knows her kid and she doesn't have any empirical proof in this first episode, but it's just, I know my kid, I'm going to trust my gut instinct and even as this this first batch of episodes goes on and there is she knows like she'll say things like i know that this sounds like i've gone mad i know this sounds like i'm crazy but trust me i'm i i know my kid and i just want to get my kid back and she sells that so hard like it it would be so easy for that performance to come off as forced but she does it so well she really does and it's career best material yeah. Right. She really sells that sort of desperation in everything she does. This knowledge that she knows what she experienced and she knows that she can't prove it to anyone, but that's not going to stop her knowing what she knows. She's getting her kid back. Yeah, Don't she's... Damn yeah. everybody else, she's getting her kid back. She, I, I, I get the feeling she would rather, like, even if she is, she's completely lost it and all these things she thinks she's experienced didn't happen. She'd rather take that risk. Like t- just go for it anyway, rather than risk ignoring something that might be the way to get her kid back. And it is just like, it is such an understandable response. Mm. I think what came through to me about Joyce as well, um, although you don't see her life before this happens much, apart from little hints at the very beginning, it's, they bring in enough detail further down the line with the very sparing use of flashbacks and um, the return of uh, her ex-husband to make it pretty clear that this sense of desperation and this having to cling on and, and prove herself to everybody, this isn't new. 
This mm. isn't something that suddenly emerged because Will is threatened. This is something that she's had. It, I, I really got the sense that she's had to do this over and over again. She seems like somebody who lives on her nerves most of the time. Yeah. And, and people who behave that way are, for a lot of other people, very easy to dismiss. So like mm. you say, she, she kind of comes at this with a sense of, I know what I know, and here is where I dig in. Yeah. And nobody is going to push me off that path, because yeah. now it's really, really important. She she really gives the impression in this first episode that she's had to sort of claw to keep her life together, like just grasping at everything to keep things going. Um, mm. Like there's that little exchange between her and um, what's the the other son's name? Uh, Jonathan. Jonathan. Yeah, there's the exchange between her and Jonathan where he points out like I went out to get another shift at work because I thought we could use the money, and it's you already get this this impression of like okay. Not only is she working her socks off to keep a family fed, she's visibly stressed by that situation to the point that her son has tried to help out financially with her keeping the house afloat. Hmm. Plus, there's no present father, which is like, okay, she's doing this as a single mother. It does all come together in this like one couple of minutes over breakfast scene to just be like she's really having to fight to keep her family together and she'll be damned if she's going to let something like an invisible monster from another dimension, you know, take tear that family apart. Mm. Yeah, absolutely. She's worked too hard. Something's coming at the buyers. Must be Tuesday. Um, and they're, they're, um, that, that, interaction that you have with Jonathan as well there's it also adds to that sense that she is working as hard as she can and it's still not mm. enough the fact that he is having to take on as many extra shifts as he can they're having to have this very structured um you know one in one out sequence so that Will doesn't get left on his own which they're trying really hard to do he is not a latchkey kid not a typical in and out when you please um he's he's got this this sense of innocence that I mean, even Jonathan, to a point, still has a kind of a, a very innocent and slightly naive viewpoint on the world. Now, for her to be able to maintain that in this tension and, and stress of having to keep the house going mm. is not easy. And the fact that this family, the, the two families that you get the most detail on are the Byers and the Wheelers, um, Wills and Mikes, and that juxtaposition of the, the Wheelers being much more typical you know 2.7 or whatever the average was at that point kids uh, the father goes out and works the mother stays home and looks after uh, the little one um you know they they her children don't seem to want for anything mike has mm. an entire basement bedroom mm. all to himself with a, an ensuite bath he's a little prince yeah exactly and and mm. nancy as well seems to have you know this when Dustin's chucking around his Millennium Falcon, if he was real, like if he was like, I might never get that back again. Like if it breaks, I'm never going to get it for Christmas. Like, get off my Millennium Falcon! But he's just like, come on, stop freaking around. Yeah. Which is nice of him, but at the same time, he's got hot and cold running Millennium Falcons. <laughs> <laughs> so it would appear. Sidewire, by the way, Mike is my favourite character, tied with L. But um, yeah, it's it's. Uh, he is in a, a very different situation to Will. Mm, yeah. Yeah. And yet they are very close friends. There's, yeah. there's none of that sense of their social situations um, putting a barrier between them, which there is with Nancy and Jonathan. Yeah. I, I must say my favourite character 
by quite a long way, I love Dustin. Dustin is wonderful. <laughs> oh, and me too. Me he's, too. He's, he's just wonderful and adorable, and he's he's amazing. He's such and a sweetheart, is... and yet you want to smack him around the back of the head on several occasions. But, but he's so needed for this, because when it gets heavy, Dustin's there to lighten it up. He's your soccer mm. from uh, from Legend of Bang. Yeah, and he's not, like, unnecessarily sweet. Like, he understands the, the weight of these situations, but he just... I think he gets the impre- like he gets the knowledge that sometimes you just have to do a stupid gappy grin to try and make your friends mm. laugh in a terrible day. Mm. <laughs> Absolutely. And like I said yesterday, he's the man in the chair. Mm. He's he's mm. the guy who sort of has the I, I have the knowledge and I am standing yeah. right behind you, well away from the big scary thing that's over there. I think we can expect great things from Dustin in season two. And if they kill him, oh, oh there'll be trouble. Oh my God. I mean, you thought there'd be trouble when Bob died. Jeez. Honestly, he feels like the kind of character that is just loved enough that they might do it. Oh, no. Like, doesn't he feel the perfect level of loved to get killed off in the, in like the season two opening? Yes. Not the opening. No. Finale. No. Please let it be. Oh God! Don't like let it be a Han Solo. Don't let it be a a, a Greedo. Let's no. <laughs> see it being like a catalyst to adventure. Oh no, we lost Dustin. Oh God! Oh, no. Don't even joke. Don't even. Well, this isn't speculate. George R. R. Martin, so we can hope. Let, mm. Let's hope. <laughs> okay. Um, a couple of little things I noticed about uh, episode one. Um, they modelled Joyce's character on Richard Dreyfuss in Close Encounters of the Third Kind. Who's seen that recently? Right here. Okay. Um, am I wrong in thinking that he basically comes off like a complete arse who abandons his family to go off gallivanting with aliens? Yes. Yeah. That's entirely how he plays it. So, but the the way um, Winona Ryder's doing it is like, she's, I mean, it's not just that she's, I mean, this is sort of way beyond episode one stuff, but it's not just that she appears to be loopy or, or starting to really crack to um, uh, other people. She really is starting to go off the edge. Now, there's a, there's a, a very a, a fine line between appearing to be um, touched and affected to, to people and actually really genuinely being in the zone. I've been... There myself occasionally, but um, it's in the opposite direction in that she cares so much about her family and no one else will listen. So she's kind of the anti-Dreyfus. And I love Richard Dreyfus, by the way. You stay away, 2017. There's something very elemental about a mother who very strongly wants to protect her family, more so even than the, the, the okay. There is ten times the strength in a mother trying to protect her family than a former father avenging the death of his dead family, for me. Mm. Um, which is ironic, considering uh, the, the sheriff. But that is played extremely close to the chest. He doesn't stomp around the place going, yeah, well, I can punch guys in the face because my dead family! That's the really interesting thing about Hop, especially across these first four. Because this first episode, he's the weak link. With the exception of, of the wonderful one about mornings, off a coffee and contemplation. Yeah. He's a boozy cop on the edge. He, you know, We're introduced to him the same way we're introduced to Riggs' uh, motorhome yeah. in the Lethal Weapon movies. Yeah. And it's a credit to the writing and to David Harbour that as the show goes on, Hop moves from being this central casting Sheriff Dirk chest meet 
into this really interesting, really sweet and complex game. So I, I do think there is like on on my first viewing, I would have agreed with you about Hopper. But there was something that in episode one did kind of stand out to me. I'd not thought about before, which is is the reason why he's so dismissive of the idea of like going on the, the rushed chase for a for a missing kid because he's lost a child already. Is it maybe to some degree rooted in if the kid if something bad has happened, the kid's dead already. Mm, and as yes. such, why am I rushing? Yes. Because uh, it's you know, either the kid's fine or the kid's dead. And I, that I, sort of like background of having lost a kid already maybe is part of why his character is the way he is in episode one. And I'm not saying that they did a good job of putting that across if that's what they were going for but it's just something that struck me on a second viewing oh no i i think that's almost certainly it with the added thing of you know this is a guy who is a who's functionally a a wound with vocal cords Mm -hmm. and he's left he he finds himself in this situation where he's almost certainly going to come face to face with the thing he comes face to face with every time he wakes up in the morning so Mm -hmm. you kind of can't blame him for going you know what I think I'm going to take my time on this. Mm. I can't be a party to another parent going through what I went through. Yeah. 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 If I, if I take my time, hopefully by the time I get round to this case, the kid will have turned up already. Yeah. Like I think there's a bit of that to it. Um, A complete change of tone. Something I completely forgot to talk about when we were talking about Dustin, his actor has, Clydeocranial dysplasia—the condition that Dustin has in the show, the uh, thing where he has an issue with development of his bones and teeth, which mm. I thought was interesting. Like his lisp he has in the show is because he, as an actor, still has all his baby teeth and has no collarbones, and has basically like he struggled for a long time to get acting roles, and the uh, the 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 brothers who did the show, the Duffer brothers, were basically just like, yeah, it's fine. We'll give your character the same condition, and we'll have them mention it in episode one. There you go. That's great. It's, uh, we said that uh, last week in Gargoyles about uh, Detective Elisa's heritage and her lineage was worked into the actual character from the voice actress. So it's a really great sort of way of sort of personalizing that and, and tying yeah. them together. It, it gives them flavor, which you know, just from the get go, they've got this thing going. Which is not the same as just making your character a grab bag of quirks that you just come up with on the spot. Actually having that worked in, it for a start, it gives the voice actors, or indeed the actor in this case, something to work with that feels very yeah. personal. Hmm. Well, exactly. allowing, allowing them to work something that they have direct familiarity with into the character is a way of enhancing that character and again like we said from the Mm. beginning making it feel real it's you know up there with i don't know chris evans working his own experience of anxiety Mm. into um steve rogers experience Mm. of anxiety yeah because like i i think about like what are the key scenes we see of dustin in this first episode and one of the most memorable things is him being bullied for his teeth and then having his very personal as an actor speech about his condition and you know trying to push back people who were bullying him for something about his his health and his body which is like it's a strong idea to have the first time that you're one of your child actors 
has a personal scene be about something that that child actor is already intimately familiar with and has quite possibly been bullied for in the past. Mm-hmm. Almost certainly. Kids are awful. Yeah. Sidebar, by the way, David Harbour, that's um, Sheriff Hopper, has been earmarked. I don't know if this is going to date. And, like, you remember when I was saying, oh, J.J. Abrams won't do a Star Wars film. Um, but uh, it, you know, it's going to be Matthew Vaughan uh, <laughs> clinging to that one. Um, as Hellboy in the new um, you know, Mignola-focused uh, Hellboy show, which I'm assuming is probably going to be like a Netflix or a, an HBO and an ABC or something. I was watching him closely throughout my uh, second viewing this time. He has got such a slab of an expressive face um, and a great voice and these great eyes. And originally I was like, eh. And now I just think, yeah, you know what? Paint him red. You know, make sure he does some sit-ups after uh, playing uh, a gym. And uh, yeah, got a hellboy there. And considering how much I love Ron Perlman, from his toes to his, the tip of his little beard. Um, that's saying something for me. <laughs> and considering how much I love the character of Hellboy. So, uh, yeah, looking forward to that and seeing him, uh, him stretch some more dramatic muscle. Uh, I love that I was noticing, especially in this watch through, that it, they, at least the character, I don't know about the actor, obviously, but Hopper loves to get into scraps. He gets like if he has he you know he punches people a few times and like he gets this just tiny little grin on his face and I'm like oh you just love to brawl you just want to get into fight which is perfect for Hellboy <laughs> yeah true actually he, he he does love a scrap so oh, yeah I'm, I'm hoping that visually speaking that that's got a lot of sort of you know dark shadows but really stark contrasts of the the, the light the way that Mignola draws I would love that in live action Mm -hmm. one thing I really loved for episode one that we kind of uh, skimmed over a little bit when talking about Will's disappearance Mm. I love how sudden and silent it is that it is completely there's nothing made of it it's not it's not the big sort of crescendo that you usually expect of like a big tense chase scene it is so understated that it is itself unsettling and it ties mm. back to all those like the things that they don't show you in Stranger Things are often the most unsettling. Yeah. And in this first episode, it is like you're hiding from a thing that's outside the door. You're prepared to fight, fight it off. You know, you're going to you're going to protect yourself. And there's no moment to protect yourself. There's no this thing breaks in and is scary in front of your face. It's just yeah. one minute you're here, the next you're not. Because he's a cheating fecker and he'll sneak up behind you and rematerialize yep. through your puny human walls. Mm. Exactly. But again, that's part of what I really appreciated with the whole we're not going to dwell and linger on this terrified child being mm. grabbed by this monster yeah. that's hideous and slimy yeah. and, and horrendous and has teeth and, and it will mm. bite and It's hurt more powerful and, if it just they pull out just, the sound yeah. and then pull away. Yeah, and then like, you get the consequences, the reactions yeah. of everybody else. That's exactly it is. We don't see the act, we see the consequence. Mm. Um, but like, yeah, I was just I was struck by the fact that usually, even if you didn't see anything, you'd hear a scream. Yeah. And the fact that there's no scream, it's just flash and the room is empty. Mm. How do you fight something like that? How do you fight something that can take you before you even know you're gone? Mm. And then we just have a bunch of episodes before we find out what you do with that. Indeed. As Richie of... says in It, it's like trying to fight smoke. Yeah. Kind of similar to the, the Weeping Angels in Blink. Actually, that whole idea of that just... And you're gone. It, that aspect of it really emphasised the fact that 
terrible things can happen in small town, and they're so quiet and so behind closed doors that nobody notices, and it, and people will just disbelieve the that the worst of it. Mm. Couple of more things on this first episode: X Men One Thirty Four that uh, I think Dustin name drops. Like you know, I'll race you back to your house and get any, you know any comic for the winner. And he says, "I'm going to get your X Men One Hundred and Thirty Four. That's the one where Jean becomes the Black Queen." Which Ooh. could that foreshadow what happens in season two? <laughs> Question mark. It foreshadows L. Yeah, for basically a start. that. Yeah, oh. that the whole Dark Phoenix uh, side of things. And yeah, the, the whole Phoenix, of, Dark Phoenix, actually. Yeah. The idea of somebody who has uh, psychokinetic powers being um, manipulated to believe that one thing is happening when actually something else mm. is happening in order to use her. That's another good uh, thing about working with kids in this scenario. Viewers can believe that kids will believe and be totally on board with what's going on much quicker. Adults take a lot longer to get their heads around it. They waste our time going, well, that's not possible. It's like, oh, God, how much stuff do we have to watch before you admit that it's possible? Whole more episode goes by and, like, Scully's saying, I don't believe that aliens with big elbows are taking over the country, Mulder. At the end, she's swatting them off with a tennis racket. She's like, I still don't believe this. And, yes. Um, But it deliberately evokes Stephen King when he was hungry. Like, well, hang on. Update virus protection. (laughs) Seriously, now? (laughs) Yes, now. Update your virus protection. (laughs) Why now? Okay, hang on. We'll go back again. But it deliberately evokes Stephen King when he was hungry. Not Stephen King now, not Stephen King at some point in the 90s, but Stephen King, 70s and 80s. I think they even name-check... Um, sorry, they reference Cujo at one point. It's like, that's one mean dog or something like that, mm-hmm. uh, show, uh, Hopper says. Yeah. Mid, mid-late 90s, for me, was the real drop-off point. Because Needful Things, which I believe was 91, is still mm-hmm. really, really good. Well, okay. Um, but, uh, yeah, they, they got the whole font from Firestarter. But the way the title sequence comes together, it's obviously it's in a Stephen King-like font, but it's sliding past us like the Terminator while that brilliant synth music's playing. It's one of the best title sequences I've ever seen, and it's, it's just slotting letters into place, and then at the end they've just sort of slotted in like a puzzle, and the whole image is revealed, and then it comes back, but they're sort of like... The the score, I mean, everyone's always going on about the score. It's amazing. You know it's amazing. But just that this this title sequence deserves props. As far as I'm concerned, there is no excuse for not having a title sequence to your show. The, uh, the, the Thundercats 2012 version, they just went, well, we can't possibly beat the original Thundercats one, so we're not even going to try. We're just going to go, Thundercats. And that's your title Doesn't sequence. Doesn't Netflix do a thing that if, you, if you're if you binging something, they only show you the title sequence for the first episode and then they automatically skip it? They are quite clever with that, but uh, it does rob... Like, if you go back in and start again, you still get the intro sequence. Mm. And, yeah. Uh, yeah. Um, so I got the title sequence all four episodes I watched back to back. Oh, cool. Yeah, it, I was going to so, say, it definitely doesn't do that for this. You definitely yeah. see the title sequence so every time. My, okay. As as I understand it, like for the for the non Netflix commission shows, they do like skip the title sequence if you watch them in like one after another. Some of the Netflix originals don't do this, and I think it's the ones that they think have short enough intros. Right. Okay. Yeah. I believe there's a. I think when we were watching, there was a skip intro button, 
that popped up right at the beginning of the title mm. sequence when you're watching it in sequence. So right. like it, and it's there for maybe 15 seconds, I want to say. Mm. So if you want to, if you want to skip it, you have the option. It would be nice if you could program your preferences into Netflix and then just let it leave. So like you could specifically tell Netflix and I, I would imagine that in years to come, they will actually do this. Just let me watch the end credits don't flick it to the corner and start badgering me to watch yeah. something else. Especially like if I'm, if I'm reeling from something huge, I don't like if, especially if it was like the, the end of a film and it's huge. And like, I just, I'm just trying to absorb that. And it's yeah. like, Hey, do you want to watch this movie? It's like, no, no, it, no, it takes oh, you away from that moment of decompression. Yeah. You need that. Absolutely. And I completely get that. They need people. They want people to be able to like a lot of people, this won't bother them and they'll want to see what's on next, which is why I say preferences. But I also would like my DVD player to remember that I, I, I'm an Englishman who lives in England and to stop asking me every single time I put in a new disc, what language I want in have a guess. DVD player. You can remember what place we're at in the DVD, but you can't remember that I'm English? Sorry. Just stupid. I never knew you that you were this passionate about your your DVD player knowing your English. It's, I'm this passionate about not getting my entertainment interrupted. Um, and do you know what I would like Netflix to do? What? Have a toggle button yeah. for don't play me trailers while I've just left the screen still while I decide what I want to watch. <laughs> but at the very least, don't play me trailer audio when it's just sat there and I'm scrolling through trying to find something. Stop trying to give me House of Cards. Trailers. You must things. have to have it. I just. <laughs> While we're on the subject of Netflix, um, uh, I, I mentioned before that I had a, a bugbear about streaming to talk about, and it's about um, I don't know what the exact technical terms are: bitrate, compression, and blacks and greys. When you're looking at a black screen and you're streaming, by and large, um, it's different to if you're just watching it in full color. In full color. Um, or with a good bandwidth, you're, you know, it, it, it sort of, you know, you can see everything and it very rarely goes blurry. In darkness, you get this horrible, like, stickle brick effect as it tries desperately to differentiate between different shades of black because there are obviously different shades of grey and there's true black and Stranger Things got a lot of black in it. Mm. And so, um, it, it kind of makes me edgy about, well, for a start, like if I want to buy something on Amazon video forever, I'm like, hang on, how much black is in this thing? <laughs> it's fine. <laughs> Just buy the Blu-ray release. Oh, wait, no, it's a Netflix thing. Yeah, indeed. But yeah. I mean, like something like I wanted to buy Bedazzled on Blu-ray, um, the uh, much, much better uh, 2000 version directed by Harold Ramis. And um, it came out on Blu-ray for about a month in 2003 and uh, then was swiftly recalled so you can find it for 79.99 it's very difficult to get hold of but it's five pounds to buy on amazon and that's okay because it's you know lots of bright red amazon adam's family is out on blu-ray we watched it earlier today adam's family is a great movie adam's family values is not out on blu-ray if i get the amazon video version 
then all the blacks, and there's a lot of blacks in that thing, are going to end up with this sort of weird crushed square mm. pixely effect. Materials, one of the worst things for it. So curtains or yeah. uh, a cloak or, say, for example, a long black dress. Which has when that it, light and shifts, shade playing exactly, off it. Yeah. When it. When it moves, basically, I think what it is, is it's trying to tell the difference between the bit of material that is slightly facing this way and the bit of material yeah. that's slicing facing that way and the only way it can do that is with squares yeah and put some squares up there you go enjoy enjoy <laughs> so um that's how the human eye works right <laughs> <laughs> mostly squares so i mean I, I will always favor hard copy in my heart in my hand until they deal with this particular issue and it's going to be a long time because the further we get forwards they're just going to keep up in the resolution and it's always going to be playing catch up with the bandwidth so i mean it would be solved much easier if you could just download the whole thing and save it on your hard drive and then just play it natively but they haven't done that yet because of piracy so mm. yeah anyway that's the tiny well, teeny tiny little uh, moan i don't know if this would fix your issue but netflix does allow you to download their original series to watch offline True, and I don't know if actually. viewing offline would fix that issue for you. They might. Let's give it a go. Would that work on the TV? Uh, I, have I know no it works idea. on I iPad. Know that, I know that my phone has that option. I don't know if the TV has that option. Hmm. Well, if I'm watching it through the Xbox One, that has enough space to be able to save at least an episode. So hmm. I will do some we'll quick research and find out for you. It's a great feature, by the way. That's uh, that. That means that you do not have to gobble up your um, your minutes just watching a movie. Mm, I did it with North and South, so I could watch it at work because oh, nice. I knew you would have absolutely no interest in watching Is Richard, Richard Armitage, Armitage in, in a loose in a shirt, Pride and Prejudice like thing. <laughs> okay, highly were. recommended, by the way. Oh, is it good? Uh, apparently, good. you can only download to watch offline on mobile devices or PC, not on consoles or uh, and there you uh, have it, Laura, thus fixing nothing. Uh, well, if you watch on PC, you can maybe watch the offline version without the thing. Folks, I sit here on PC all day long. My uh, my chair is perfectly formed to my buttocks. <laughs> and uh, so every time I sit down, my, my, my entire body seizes up and goes, right, get into work mode. I can't relax and watch Stranger Things. Plus, my monitor looks like shit in comparison to the TV. So, but Does your TV have a USB port on it? Hmm. Download it on the computer and put it on a flash drive? Maybe. Do that? This seems remarkably complex to just get rid of that that patchiness. But yeah, okay, yeah, but you we can maybe jury rig it. Some of the patchiness. Yeah, gotta do that. That that the only way you can is do that it, is with a USB drive and downloading and yep. than downloading yep. an entire film over the course of three days. Like on LimeWire. Like we used to have to. Oh, I have God. never ever oh, done that in my days. life. I don't know what you're talking about. <laughs> it's stealing piracy. Anyway. Anyway, moving um, on. So, uh, L, back to that, um, uh, specifically the scene in the diner. What I really liked uh, over those first few episodes, before she really barely says anything, is that you get to know about L through visual storytelling and through other people's reactions to her. So the government agents after her and how they treat her and, and how worried they are about her in particular, the people who are kind to her. And Millie Bobby Brown's amazing, uh, wordless acting. It's almost like you get you get like a the, the silhouette of the L character from everybody reacting to her, and then she fills that in 
by how she develops over the rest of the series, if that makes sense. Mm. I think it is very telling, though, that um, most people, at least initially, see her as a blank slate, with the possible exception of Benny, and Alistair, that's one of the reasons why I really liked him as well. Um, She is treated as a tool, a toy... Um, uh, a, a mystery, a weapon, you know, but there is an asset. very few moments <clears throat> early on where she is given the capacity to be a person. Mm. That doesn't really kick in until later, and it's still only a handful of moments where she actually gets to manifest what she wants and who she is. And a big part of that is obviously the fact that she's been robbed of the opportunity to develop what she wants and who she mm. is because of how she's been treated and how she's been raised. Well, there's, there's a really big visual and like narrative conflict between the way that like other people perceive her and the first-hand view of her we get in this first episode, because if you judged her purely on other people's reactions to her, she is dangerous and terrifying and powerful and the government are after her. But if you judge her based purely on what you see from her herself, she's a scared child who, you know, is just trying to get away from people who she's scared of, trying to find something to eat, and is afraid to talk to people because she's just scared and alone. And that that real contrast sets up this idea straight away of, okay, there has to be something else to her that we don't know about. But it lets it lets us see her be her with Benny for a little while to be like, look, she is a person. No matter what else you're going to find out about her abilities as we go on, she is a person. Who's clearly never... I mean, the way she reacts to Benny, especially at first... I don't think she's ever been shown kindness, like, in her mm. entire life. Like, even just that little bit, he, she's kind of like, what do I do with this? How do I react to you? I, I don't yeah. know what to do here. You, you caught me stealing and you're not attacking me or yeah, angry exactly. at me? How do I respond? How much do we know about her life? This is slightly jumping ahead, but it, it's, it's very pertinent to Elle herself. How much do we know about her... Um, life before when she uh, she was the daughter of that catatonic woman isn't she mm, but she was taken yeah. very young how young are we talking here i think they took her from birth jesus the impression i got was that it was pretty much straight away right okay that all stands to reason then because they said you know that that they led her to believe she miscarried which presumes that she gave birth and they whisked the baby away and that's it. Yeah, no, yeah, you're absolutely right then. That's mm. um she she never received a mother's love or uh, anybody's love. Mm. And it, she's had to take what she can from Martin Brenner. Mm. See, that was something that the the moments of apparent kindness and contact that he shows her are all manipulative. Mm. They're all calculated to get a particular reaction out of her. It's Uh, The impression I got is that he is the nicest person to her there. Mm. And as such, like, that's her her bar is. Yeah. You are slightly more attentive to my needs and my feelings than other people here. Therefore, you are the height of, of, you know, protective parental figure when he's still like a manipulative monster. But he's a manipulative monster that occasionally asks how she's doing. Absolutely. Everybody else treats her like a thing. He at least recognises that she is a a human. 
yes. if it doesn't go as far as this is a child who actually needs contact. And it's it's the reason why something which I will talk about later because it's in a much later episode mm. is incredibly powerful for me. Which, which thing in the later episode? Can you hint at it? Uh, it's the pool. The pool. Okay. Yeah. Ah, yeah, specifically with Joyce. Mm. Okay, yeah. No, but I'll I got talk you. about that too. I know which bit you're talking about. Okay. Um, also, did you notice that whenever she gets dragged away from him, it's always by other people, and he mm. seems to stand there as though powerless to prevent this happening to her. So she calls out to him, um, you know, with a, with a plea for mercy at this point, yeah. as opposed to... He's the one who ordered them to drag her away. Absolutely, but that's the, the again that I yeah. that I perceived as being part of the manipulation. He he doesn't save her when she calls out to him, mm. but he doesn't actively push her away either. Yeah, because mm. that's not the that that can absolutely be used as a tool to manipulate somebody emotionally, but that's not the game he's playing. Yeah, well, it's exactly the reason I think it might be the second episode. It's when like she's. But she blasts people away when they're trying to lock her in that sort of solitary cell. She yeah. doesn't do anything to him because mm. he's not physically the one who dragged her away. Yeah. No, in fact, completely contrasting, he's the one who comes and effectively comforts her, and I'm doing air quotes That's here. Big because, air quotes, yeah. yeah. Um, when she is understandably utterly exhausted and terrified of what she's just done. Mm-hmm. While we're still on episode one, I have an episode one question for everyone. Sure. When the phone goes um, and Joyce answers it and she hears the uh, the sort of uh, static and maybe some breathing that she's very convinced is is her son. How much of that do you put down to the fact that she's just desperate for her son to return versus how much do you think it is her actually recognising her son in the call? Honestly... I, I tend towards 100% she recognises him in the call because anything other than that moves towards a version of Joyce that I don't, I don't see in the show which is the idea that you know she's frantic and desperate for anything and is clinging on to things which aren't there and the whole point is that for me at least is that the things that Joyce is clinging on to absolutely are there because here's, here's my thoughts on it like having watched the whole show I agree with you Watching this first episode the first time in isolation, I got completely the opposite read. I completely read it as she is grasping at straws and hoping. And I think for me, it's only her later actions and the later things she experiences that recontextualize that first phone call for me. Interesting. I I, I like that as a read. It's not one I subscribe to, but I, I think there's looked at from that perspective i think her her narrative yeah. has some really interesting extra dimensions to it it's like i think i think a lot of the things she experiences later in this show do have real merit and are hard to deny and i think she has real merit to follow but i think that if this was the only thing that happened to her i would think that her thinking it was that that call was from her son might have been clutching at straws Mm. I think certainly if the episode was structured slightly differently and if by this point you hadn't seen anything at all creepy and supernatural and, and um, uh, suggestive of the Upside Down, it would be there as a kind of 
not a mislead, but a, a, an implication that you can see this several ways. And it yeah. could possibly be like, that, that she's, you know, imagining yeah. things because she's so desperate. Yeah, like, to, to be clear, I totally believe that it, that it is her son on the other side of that phone, but I think that, I don't know, watching that first episode in isolation, I kind of felt like maybe she jumped jump the gun slightly to assume it was her son. Mm. I would, however, go for that to um, what she says to Hopper. Do you think I don't... I mean, she, she effectively says all she's heard there is his breathing. It's not even his voice. Um, mm. But the fact that she says to Hopper, do you think I don't know the sound of my own son breathing? Wouldn't you know the sound of your daughter's? And he looks at her and the expression on his face says, yes, yes, I would. Mm. Yeah, that's fair. I think they left that purposely ambiguous to spark exactly this sort of discussion. Yeah. Oh, like, absolutely, I, yeah. Yeah, Yeah. like, watching back over episode one today, I did listen to that section with headphones on. I couldn't hear anything that sounded like breathing in that phone call. <laughs> Which is why I was just like, I found it interesting. Mm, yeah. Well, it's uh, it's... <sighs> I think there's a lot of that, to be honest. There's a lot of, throughout the whole series, there are scenes which are set up to be interpreted and they're not clear. They, depending on you, the the watcher, and your thoughts and your standpoint um, and what you experience, you're going to get a completely different read on it than somebody else who sees exactly the same thing um and one example that i would give is um something that that somebody brought up on twitter half you know light-heartedly um but basically they were talking about the fact that um that steve is not such a bad guy and in fact that they found him uh, easier to uh, to get behind than Jonathan to a degree um, and part of that for them was the idea that yes all right he starts out being a, a dick and manipulative and a bully but then when he does things which are um, are more open-minded and more kind of stand-up type behavior it you then see him as more of well he's an actual person and there are shades to his character and there are dimensions to his behavior and then that made them feel more engaged with him whereas for me it was almost completely the opposite the fact that he behaves like a dick and a bully to begin with means that anything apparently good that he does later on is immediately suspicious and questionable yeah. but that's my way of viewing somebody who behaves like that compared to their way of viewing somebody who behaves like that they trust their audience to be smart and don't hold the audience's hand yeah <laughs> and let you coalesce your own ideas about what's going on which is another thing that stephen king used to be very very good at that in evoking i think he's one of the best at evoking a setting and making a setting feel lived in and then this you know that somewhere you know yeah i agree there's and i mean that that kind of speaks to the entire cast as well especially as we move out into episodes two through four where you you have these people who are superficially very familiar and i mean i knew two or three of the sorts of folks that we meet in this show i knew their english equivalent and that ties into the, the the much earlier point again about subversion this looks familiar everything about the show looks familiar and 
everything about the show over time is revealed to be anything but. Have we exhausted episode one? (laughs) (laughs) I I think that's everything I was itching to say about episode one. Um, Oh, actually, uh, mine... Mine actually sort of covers the um, the whole of, uh, of the series, this this one final point, but I noted it in episode two, so I suppose we can move on to episode two now, uh, and I will start off with something that spreads across the whole thing. Um, we've already talked about him. Matthew Modine uh, in this. And I grunted and pooped out a poop that looked something like Matthew Modine. His character of uh, uh, Martin Brenner is one of the weakest points because who he actually is is so important to everything that's gone on. But he, I mean, it it might actually be a strength of his character in that his character is so weak. He's a man who isn't there. He's, like, I can't can't tell you a single thing about him. He has white hair and uh, is uh, emotionally closed off, but not in a terrifying, scary Agent Smith kind of way, but in a slightly bored, dispassionate way that is not particularly interesting to watch. Uh, I think the reason I was engaged with him as a character is because I am very aware of the archetype of this manipulative, fault father figure. I, I think if the show coasts anywhere, it's, it coasts with him. Yeah. Um my my hope, despite the various things that happened to him, is that we get a lot more context for him in season two. Yeah. Uh, but I, I actually watched this in very close formation with um, DOA, the uh, yeah. six the, the, the six part thing, and Jason Isaacs plays essentially the same guy in the mm. Oh, Jason Isaacs could have done that so Hello, well. Jason <laughs> Isaacs. Um, and it's infinitely more interesting, and infinitely more nuanced, and infinitely more horrid in the OA. I mean, the OA is a fascinating show because it's one of those things where about half the people I know who've seen it loathe it, and about half the people I know who've seen it think it's one of the best things that's ever been produced. But I found it really interesting, the the commonality of trope between the two, and how in particular the, the Modine character was really suffered in comparison, because he... And I, I honestly think that's why we're getting more with him in season two. This all feels like setup. I, I want context, and he's pretty much the only person we don't get it with. Mm. I personally, I mean, the whole thing is like a giant movie. It's eight hours long, but uh, it's I, I, I've always hated the idea of oh, this will be good later. No, make him Me good too. now. <laughs> um, the uh, I mean, especially because we just saw Logan again, and Richard E. Grant is effectively the same character, and is, he's bone chilling. In that film, uh, in in that he's so, you know, we've made things better, and he really believes what he's saying. Mm, yeah, it, it, the way um, Brenner is, and I would I would say the way Modine plays him, but you're right about him being kind of blank. Um, there's no, I, I never got a sense that he was particularly passionate about what he's doing. Mm. It's just all about the. Uh, the daily plod of science experiments yeah. that he very carefully tries not to get his hands dirty with. But we've seen the. I mean, basically, they're doing Weapon X again, and we've, they're doing Firestarter again, they're doing Akira again, and we've seen that done to death. So, like, um, this is this was the opportunity to put in a character who 
like is or, like if he, imagine if he was conflicted over Elle, how much more interesting that would be of a character. Mm. So if his bonding with her was at mm. least in part actually genuine. Yeah. Now this is me like saying, oh, oh this is what I would want from the, the, this series, and sort of writing in new plot strands, but. Um, I am, you know, I, I've watched it twice now, and I was not chuffed by Modine the first time, and definitely not chuffed when I knew that there was nothing it was leading up to. Mm. Like he, he pretty much disappears in the last episode. He's just like hit him, and basically like this shady government group that he heads up get completely depowered by Jim Hopper in one sentence. Hopper turns around and goes, "Here's how it's going to be," and they all go. Yeah, all right. Just walk in there, fucking get him back. Oh, we don't even know what we're doing anymore. And like, they're sort of like scratching themselves and looking at their shoes at this point. And then they bugger off out of the whole episode, completely and utterly powerless. These guys you've been building up the whole time. Also, Matthew Modine would have been rendered so much more powerful if that Darth Maul woman, his hand that he'd been sending out, had been like in every episode, like lurking and, you know, bumping off people. You'd have been like, oh, she's getting closer, she's getting closer. And, like, he wouldn't even have to really do anything because he's delegating so well. She kills Benny at the beginning, which is, you know, terrible because he could have been a great character still to this day in, in season two. And then doesn't turn up again until she's at the teacher's house. And then that's a great scene because she's like, oh, shit. But, like, that's the end of episode two as a scene, you know, as she starts to sort of, like sniff out where where l is but that, that's a that's an aspect of episode of season one which they failed to develop and they've got plenty of room to uh to to catch that back up again in season two but they got a lot of a lot of lost ground with the shady government mm. Mm. Although, because it seems like they're in way over their heads well, i was just about like, to say I well we did do... open a hell dimension as a source of energy but it just went wrong just, just went like in wrong. doom um i do quite like the idea that having not seen much of what goes on behind the scenes at the shady government organization in season two it turns out that it's like cabin in the woods they actually don't know what the hell they're doing that would be cool that would be cool indeed i, I was picturing slightly differently i picture that woman like her entire job is she just sits behind a desk at the like the shady agency not doing anything until they happen shady to someone who like specifically <laughs> is like we need you to play either like a, a female secretary for like the the, the place of uh, social security social services mm. or like something to do with teaching basically she just sits behind a desk all day until it's like we need someone to play nice lady from official yeah. board of mm. officialness. Oh, you will have to plug a guy, by the way. <laughs> it's like the reason they had AWPC in police procedurals in the 80s. Yeah. They, they were there to talk to the occasional female witness. Yeah. <laughs> but it's... it's a, oh, sorry, carry on. Oh, I was just... I was going to mention something about uh, Matthew Modine's character. Do it, um, yeah. uh, Just Ooh. something we noticed uh, this watch around is the fact that Almost always when you see him, his eyes look completely black. Yeah. Yeah. That's what I was thinking. Like, they could, like, I was expecting there to be a moment where a person really talked to him and realized, oh, shit, you're like a hollow shell of a man. Mm. And that would have been terrifying. But they didn't. And, I mean, it could still happen. But it just seems like he goes home and puts on Phil Collins. <laughs> I've I've seen you. You're not cool. Okay, so chapter two, the weirdo on Maple Street. 
this is where Eleven is now um, hanging around their basement and they're, they're trying to work out, you know, everything about her from the very little she gives them. Um, I like the uh, the interesting reversal on the whole, like, she's, she gets up and starts to strip off and, like, Dustin's like, whoa, oh, my God, oh, my God. And it's like, like, she just, like, it doesn't even register to her. And, in fact, she kind of wants them to, like, she wants to be able to see them and for them to see her. Um, so that she knows she's So that safe. she knows she's not going to get locked somewhere. So, so it's it's like they've she's got completely different priorities to them. I like that, once again, we have an example of our child protagonists are sensible in mm. that their first instinct when it's like, there is a kid and we don't know where this kid came from or what's up with them, is how do I get my parents to find out that this kid exists so that my parents can help? Because they are adults, they know what they're doing. Yeah. Yeah. Like that is the default assumption is like, kid, go out the window, go knock on my front door, my parents will fix this. Because <laughs> parents, they know everything. They know how to fix problems. Which they're so screwed. Like all the parents ex- all the adults except pretty much Joyce and Hopper are evil or useless in this. Yeah. I don't know which of those is worse, evil or useless. Both of them are pretty yeah. bad here. But that's why um there is sorry, more, on, more inspiring majesty of Mr. Clark. Yeah, no, he's great. Oh, yes, yes. Uh, yes, I'm more. sorry. Let me not forget Mr. Clark. That's uh, that's like everybody's dream teacher. Yeah. Yeah. The that, teacher that recognizes your potential and gives you tech to build on it. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> all all of the kids like completely underestimate Eleven at the beginning of episode two. Like they all assume that there has to be something wrong with her. She is ill. She is deaf. Like the, it's uh, they they assume that because she's not talking means there is something wrong and she can't be talking. Mm. Also, again, they fall into the trap of... Um, of Not that they're seeing her as a thing, but they are overlaying what they want her to be on mm. who she really is. That, the fact that the, the yeah. first thing they do is give her a name. That's like when you find a stray cat... Don't they ask what her name is and she points to Eleven? I didn't see it as them giving her the name Eleven? No, Mike tells her he's going to call her L. Oh, okay. That, giving her a nickname I didn't feel was too, like... I, I think that's really interesting, you you sort of seeing it as a as a sort of ownership thing that parallels back to that episode one stuff of her being seen as a thing. Mm. I just saw it as a nice, like, uh, Eleven isn't a thing that's a name. We're slightly weirded out by this. We'll give you a nickname because, like, hey, then it feels like you're one of the gang. You're one of the friends. And also yeah, did, yeah, did yeah, Elliot own weird. E.T.? No, no, no. Oh, I, he gives I, them I totally in the name E.T. That. No, no, no. I don't, and I didn't think that, that there was E-L. anything sinister in it. <laughs> I, I certainly don't think that was their intention. And, you know, Mike does it in the nicest possible way. But I think for me, it just it couples in a little bit with the whole putting her in a dress and giving her a wig. And, and it just it yeah. just feels like they're laying things on her that aren't of her. I mean, even if you think about it, Eleven is not her choice of name. No. It's not her... Mm. It's a designation. I was going to talk given. about that specifically yeah. with Laura. Um, effectively, uh, to be as sensitive as possible about this one, it is 
feasible that in future episodes she will say, uh, yeah, not in so many words, 11L is my dead name. I'm going to choose this name for myself. Yeah? Yep, I, I can see where you're going with that. So, yeah, names names are a tricky thing in that, like, okay, elephant elephant in the room bit. I'm a trans person. I go by Laura. That's not the name I had at birth. And I'm very uncomfortable with the fact that, like, I picked the name Laura and was like, I am much more comfortable with this. And sometimes people still use a name I was given uh, that, you know, I had no say in. And that can be a very uncomfortable thing. And I can certainly see why Eleven would have reason in the future to maybe say, hey, I'm not super cool with being named after a thing that was tattooed onto me by people that kept me captive for X number of years. Yeah. Maybe I pick a different name and you don't call me L anymore, possibly. How about that? Yeah. That parallels with um, a slave name as well, actually. The uh, the idea that... Um to, to break away from that. Well, and I want to I want to tag on too with that, that. That's a really good point about you know comparing to comparing to a little bit a trans experience um, is the fact that you know eleven having grown up in complete and utter isolation from any of her peers. I'm not sure she's ever met anyone her own age. Yeah, and. As someone who grew up myself fairly isolated, I think that tends to give you an air that's strange to people who didn't grow up there, to quote-unquote normal people. It you you're not familiar with the 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 social cues, and you're not you're not. Um, you don't know what to do, how to behave, the whole thing. And they're right at the age. They're just at the start of puberty. And that's when I think that is some of the strongest. As mm. these other kids are, you know, they they strongly perceive that this person doesn't fit. And to a certain degree, they've experienced that themselves. And so they're like, we've got to help her. We've got mm. to help her fit. Because she will, you know, this will be social death if she doesn't fit. And so I think yeah. that's part of the giving a name and, you know, trying to get her, like, no, you got to behave this X way. Mm. I think the fact that both in episodes one and two, we see the kids getting bullied for being different, particularly mm. um, going back to that example of, like, hey, we're going to bully you because your teeth haven't come in properly. Like, yeah. we've seen that, like, they know firsthand that that it can be a cruel world to people who don't fit in. And I feel like it wasn't necessarily done out of any kind of not liking Eleven for who she is, no, but no, just a desire not. to be like, is there any way that we can help make Eleven seem a bit more normal so that she doesn't face repercussions for being abnormal? As saving her pain. And I th- absolutely. Yeah. And I think for, for me, again, it comes from a, a very 
personal place and again this is what I mean about it being quite possible to see things one way depending on one set of experiences in a different way because of another and I think they juxtapose it very well and by god these guys do juxtaposition brilliantly um, with uh, Nancy and Nancy basically trying to be something that she isn't really in order to fit and actually her doing that potentially saves her life the person who resolutely sits there and goes no this is not me i'm going to go and be me over here by myself gets killed for it so that the fact that that's complying with the social norm is a, a safety thing and a protective thing I, I completely understand where that comes from i'd had a lot of experience as a, a young girl of having friends and again i'm doing the inverted commas thing who basically went you're weird we're going to do makeovers on you until you look normal <laughs> and it's something that still makes the back of my neck get hot when i see it happening i as as someone that grew up with asperger's or i i guess now under the dsm just <laughs> autism um yeah growing up different there's a lot of people in the world who will try and be like this thing about you is weird and different let's try and sand those edges off and get you a bit more like everyone else yeah absolutely and it's it is a fine line between somebody who's doing that with positive intent and because they have their your best interests in heart at heart and somebody who is basically doing it either because they think it's fun or because they just want to be mean i i you know i do understand that those fine lines exist mm. it's just i think it's it's difficult to <laughs> contain the resentment sometimes yeah <laughs> well and you can't parse that when you're that young either mm. yeah yeah that's hard absolutely. enough to parse as an adult yeah indeed on a side note laura i i'm i'm sorry if that i uh, um just bringing that up, up that topic uh, made you uncomfortable. Oh, no, I it, really didn't want to upset it, you. In any it's way, fine. Yeah. It didn't make me uncomfortable to bring the topic up, but I think the thing in my head that I was trying to pass about how to discuss it was, and I didn't touch on this, and I'm not really, I'm still trying to work my thoughts through for a second, is what amount of difference there is and how to explain the difference in terms of. I don't have resentment against my parents for giving me my previous name, but also the contextualizing back in once I've chosen to change my name, don't use the thing that used to be my name. But I think that if there was any hesitance in my voice while I was trying to explain stuff, it was trying to work out how to not sound like I was comparing my previously having been given a name by my parents to the experience of Eleven being given a number she is tattooed with as a child. Yeah. Thank you uh, for uh, for levelling that one. I, uh, basically, it's something that occurred to me while I was watching it, and I thought um, it's a serious situation. Um, obviously, Laura will have quite a bit uh, invested in this one, um, and to at least field it to you rather than just blurting it out and just acting like it doesn't particularly isn't particularly relevant to someone in the room but i'm glad that you were okay talking about it uh, yeah um, i'm 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 fine talking about it i apologize that it took me a second to put <laughs> thoughts together on it um, i don't need to apologize for that <laughs> how dare you need to articulate your thoughts <laughs> oh no on a specially complex situation as well you should have had all your notes ready um <laughs> so yeah we very quickly find out Eleven's being chased by bad guys with guns mm. like that happens very quickly just like hey wh why don't you want to go talk to my parents oh there's bad guys with guns I guess you can just live in my basement 
<laughs> we you mentioned Nancy just now. We've not even really talked about her, and she did. She does get introduced in the uh, first one, and I just I I. I I, I, this is a question for the group, actually, because Brendan's not here, and Sharon mentioned this one, and I thought that you guys could maybe, you, you guys might know someone who feels this, or one of you might know this yourself. As soon as I saw him again, I just wrote, Steve the Prick, because this guy is everything that I hate, and I think obviously he's positioned in that way to begin with, and then at the very, 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 very end, after being a perick the whole way through, he's ever so slightly less of a perick, which makes him a really complex character, right? Which I will say I really like, and again, I'll talk about it more tomorrow, but that end sequence, I... I, I like the I fact thought. that he got to live and thus be more than just himself mm. for 95% of this first season, uh, because it would just be really cheap to make him this, like, you know, villainous, twatty little kid mm. who then gets killed at the end so that you can go, ha ha, hated him, good. Yeah. But this, this, because that would have been cheap. This whole but the very end shot, you know, the one I'm talking about, made me go, oh, God, no. <laughs> now, Brendan, sorry, Sharon, I will let you carry no, on in a no, second. The reason I ask is that Brendan, um, didn't like Jonathan at all and actually thinks Jonathan's more of a creep well, no. than Steve. And I'm like, what the f- Fuck. He didn't say he didn't like him at all. He just said that... It, Suddenly it's... Jonathan's a scumbag and Steve's a good guy. <laughs> no, well, wrong. Well, his name's Steve. Wrong, Brendan. That, that wrong. You, and everyone else who thinks know, that... Really. I, no, okay, I just want to know why, basically. <laughs> Go for it. Anybody? Or Sharon? I think the, the, what you have to remember is that this whole social setup at the beginning um, for the teenagers and the party... The party? It's not a party. It's a, party. It's a, it's a getting together. That's to... three shitheads <laughs> drinking beer. Sounds <laughs> like a party to me. Um, but this, this hey, whole... I'm going to push you in the pool because I'm a total douchebag. This whole social setup is Sorry, I'm quite, a... you know, I'm... Um, mm, mm. It's okay. You got a thing about those girls who tried to let's make you over. I know. I know. I got a thing. Sorry, about I got a thing about these parties as well. You know, <laughs> we we could go further with that. Sorry, anyway. sorry, guys. No, no, no. Um, a little bit of uh, past coming back to haunt me. Though. The whole social setup is a deliberate homage to very classic 80s horror movie setups. We have to have two couples, and ideally, we have a fifth wheel as well. And mm. you know, some of them are idiots, and they behave like they. You're kind of sitting there thinking, well, maybe these guys deserve to get killed, and then somebody gets picked off who doesn't. But it's a little bit John Hughes and uh, Fast Times at Richmond High as well, like the girl oh, who's really certain that this guy's going to be great, and you're like, you know, he's not going to be great. Yeah, no, absolutely. Um, but um, but yeah, and again, you've got the again with the juxtapositions, the the boys stopping L from getting undressed in front of them. Nancy goes to take her top off and Steve just stands there with his tongue hanging out you know it's like there's your opposition there I think I'm especially spiky about it now as Lyra approaches her teenage years because I'm like you are not standing by the back door with a baseball bat (laughs) kid I got a 44 and a shovel I doubt anybody would miss you They're just going to look at you puzzled because they've never seen Clueless. I want um, them to be scared, not to go, I get that quote. No, 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 I'm serious. There was there was <laughs> something that hit me when we were watching this episode, and it was it's one of the only ones that has, because I do find TV difficult to analyse in terms of, of the symbolic language on screen. Yeah, what we've, the way we've done this show, very different from our regular shows. Absolutely. The... the, the 
for some reason, when I'm taking apart a movie, possibly because of the short duration, possibly because of the short duration, the filmmakers, by the nature of the medium, have to cram everything with as much... Um, you know, colour representation and, and symbolic stuff as they can because it's it's all got to fit into two to three hours. Um, and you, you have to get to know characters really quickly, so they have to use symbolic shorthand to get things across. And it's not quite the same with TV because they have more real estate to play with. Um, they can stretch things out. They, it, it comes across as more real and more grounded most of the time, um, but it's not as rich as far as I'm concerned in terms of, of what you can get out in a short space of time. And I'm not saying by that that it's not as rich overall by any means, but it, just that it's not as, as intense. Um, but when they're in Steve's bedroom, I was looking around at everything in there and I thought his whole life is about measuring up. His wallpaper is graph paper. It's checked like a maths book. He's got this this um, status symbol car picture on the wall. He's got Nancy taking her clothes off next to a five-foot poster of a woman in a white bikini, you know, who it seemed to be a bit of a nod to the whole um, Ingrid Bergman. White bikini? Yeah. No. Ursula Andress? Ursula Andress. Thank you, Ursula Andress. <laughs> See, you, you, you spoiled it. I like to sit and watch Sharon flail about trying to think of the <laughs> oh, name. And she does the same for me now. That's no, okay. <laughs> Oh, that was going to be fun. Let's <laughs> not forget as well the fact that Steve has truly, wondrously, architecturally evil hair. Oh, it does? Hair. Oh, Alex, you've got to say the thing about the hair because this is so true. I know it doesn't come in until a later episode, but... When, they're getting, when he's getting into the fight with Jonathan, I'm like, they, he's got a serious disadvantage here because although Jonathan has sort of longish locks, Steve's got this grabbable hair. Just grab it and just start punching and the guy's going to be flailing around like like Dark Helmet, unable to land a hit while you're just pounding him and pounding him. <laughs> Sorry. Oh, good but uh, I do like that. I think, didn't he like take a photo back-to-back with himself of um, Steve and his clearly future son, John Ralphio, from Parks and Rec? <laughs> oh. mm, yes. Who's a bigger douchebag? Um, I, uh, I think that's a tough one, folks. It is. It is a tricky one. But we can recommend Parks and Rec. It's on Amazon Prime if you've uh, got some time. Um, just churn through, as with The Office, get through the first season. The second season's where it's at. Hmm. Plus, it's the birth of Chris Pratt. In in terms of who's the bigger asshole, I would say that Steve gets very little context that would explain any of his actions and is as such an asshole with no real reason mm. and as such it's very hard to empathize with him in any way mm-hmm. whereas i would say jonathan while his actions like he does a lot of things that you really shouldn't be forgiving yeah like he, the, the whole photographing thing is I yeah mean, it, it plays into the plot but it is creepy as hell it, it's it was cre- creepy when peter parker yeah. did it. it it's creepy as hell but what i will say maybe humanizes him more i'm not saying justifies his actions but is the fact that we have a conversation where he explains his perspective and we at least get some insight into his issues with empathizing or understanding with other people and the ways that photography 
impact his ability to understand other people. I'm not yeah. saying that justifies his actions, but it it at least gives us a window into them, which is Absolutely. more than we ever get for Steve. And yes. crucially, it also gives him an opportunity to apologise, which yes. he does. He does say, I shouldn't have done that. Yeah, and like that's, that's, that's why I would say Steve is the bigger arsehole, because at, at least from what we see in the show, he is an arsehole with no explanation given and no apology issued. I think he does make a vague attempt at apologising for smashing the camera, but this is the other thing as well. Most of the justification for Steve's behaviour comes from Nancy, and that makes it worse. Yeah. Yeah, Why wasn't Steve the one that gave that gave Jonathan? Oh, sorry, uh, that's me jumping. I'm sorry, I won't say that. That's me jumping ahead to the. The, no, the actually, this because this is it's very relevant to what we're talking about. We might miss it, or, or like when we get to that point, you'd be like, "Oh yeah," and to call all the way back to that thing we were talking about seven hours and ago. Also, you're absolutely right. Yeah, yeah. Now finish that thought. Okay. Uh, why wasn't Steve the one that gave Jonathan a new camera, not Nancy? Bingo. Bingo. He could yeah. bloody afford it as well. With that yeah. House. Well, I mean, you know, yeah. he paid for it. Yeah. Yeah. On a side note, I'm fairly certain Nancy got her name from Nancy Thompson, played by Heather Langenkamp in Nightmare on Elm Street. Because she's the one who, with her plucky male teenage sidekick, decides to work out how to kill the monster that's been preying on kids. The point when they're writing Nancy's a slut, starring Nancy the slut Wheeler, and then she goes around the back alley and they're writing, you know, Nancy is a perv. No, it's uh, uh, by Jonathan Byers. Oh, Jonathan Byers is a perv, yeah. Um, and I just thought at that point, like before they get into the fight, these guys are really not worth your time. Like, I can't even muster the energy to hate you guys. You're fucking pathetic. Like, at that point, you just need to, like, look at them and go, wow. And then just walk away because that is the the most the biggest cutting put down. Like just getting angry is only feeding the little fuckers, especially that girl who's like, yeah, me to tell that. That is a girl so terrified of being called a slut that she's gonna point it at everyone, just yeah, just as a defense mechanism. It's oh, it's loathsome behavior, but it's so beneath response. It's like you can't. Like, you can't respond to that as an adult. I was just about to say, but it is very easy to say that as an adult. Yeah, as a teenager. What is this built-up hostility between Between, the two of us? We don't exist. No, you and I. Yeah. So, yeah, but then then he gets into that fight. I'm like, he's not worth it, but punch him anyway. (laughs) Hold him by the hair and punch him harder, but he's not worth it. But you see what I mean about that? You know, when, when like, uh, Brandon in his his foaming fits of, oh, well, I love Steve. Oh, He's brilliant. I believe that's his exact <laughs> I word. I think you're overstating. I, I got it third hand from Sharon. Um, but I just can't fathom, so. So, Barb. Let's talk about Barb. That's a fan favourite. Yeah. There was a whole Justice for Barb movement. I, I, would, I could get behind that. I hate what happens to her. Yeah. Like, the second time you watch it, it's even worse. Yeah. Because you realise how totally, horribly fatal it is and, and how... Well, the first time I watched it, it was confusing because it was like, right, so Will gets taken away and then he's in this other realm. And then Barb gets taken away and she's torn to shreds in this other realm. Oh, how awful. Did he at least die painlessly? To shreds, you say? Well, 
How is his wife holding up? To shreds, you say. And that comes down to the fact that obviously that Will got away, but we never really get to see that side of things. And I'm really hoping that in season two we get like a flashback on Will's part, like where like what was going I on think for him? I they've already hinted at that. Good. Mm. Has, yeah, yeah. That little yeah. flash at the end. There, yeah, that little there has the been end. a lot of talk about how season two is justice for Bob. Okay. Ooh, okay. They, I That's think apparently they do at least mention uh, Bob at the beginning and how this like that that. Thing happening to her and nobody seems to care. Mm. That's that's going to be mentioned. But again, that whole... as a result of what has happened in real life regarding her, the reaction. To yeah. Death. yeah. But again, the fact that you, when she gets taken, you see way more of it. This isn't is a um, a, a direct. Um, it's a stalking serial killer alien beast. Thing. Yeah. No. 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 Hang on. There's uh, there's oh it's god, my TV. mind's gone totally blank. D- uh, a direct opposite to the thing about not showing you the thing happening and showing you the consequences with Barb you actually get to see her taken and it's horrible um, but although again, you don't get to see her torn to shreds and no, fed you don't, upon but thankfully you know I have a thing about people being pulled into the side of swimming pools yes um, it's a very specific thing it is a very very specific thing but there's a, there's a particular scene in the what happens if they get a makeover at the same time oh my god that's <laughs> They get dragged into the side of a pool and get and a makeover. Get a makeover. <laughs> it's just, it's awful. But no, there's a, there's a particular scene in the faculty Very where... Very pushy um, makeover, girls. Uh, not Faruza Bolk. Who is it? Stokely. Stokely. Crash and burn, Casey. Yeah. Um, what's the actress's name? Imelda Staunton. Stop it. Tilda Swinton. <laughs> <laughs> I hate it when you do this, because it makes it harder for me to remember. Dakota anyway, Blue Richards. Um, the, she gets grabbed and smacked into the side of the swimming pool, and it just it this, this, clear this thing clear devel. That's the one, and it just it makes my brain hurt. I can't even explain it, it but it's wet tiles and the potential. Did that for actually to happen slip. to you when you were a kid? I have no idea. I don't think so. We haven't been letting our guests talk. The, wor- <laughs> the worst thing I can think of that ever happened to me in a swimming pool is I slipped on the step and scraped uh-huh. my leg on the edge of the the plastic. Maybe step. your brain conjured up a worst case scenario at that point, and you keep reliving that tiny flash of worst case scenario. That is entirely possible because that's how my anxiety works. Oh, for goodness sake! Okay, right. I might need to. Your work brain on that. is your worst enemy. Anyway, oh, I know that. <laughs> um, but anyway, so this this whole set up with the party is is like i said before it's this deliberate nod to your nightmare on elm streets and your friday the 13th and, and douchebags so, and there's the sin factor as well they're drinking and they're talking about having promiscuous absolutely. sex absolutely so and the ones who have the sex don't get preyed upon exactly mm-hmm. it's a complete flip on the expected thing of the horror movie where Bingo. the person who's like not doing the sex is the first one dead yes yeah. Maybe that's why we all thought it was ridiculously unfair. Yeah. Well, yeah. I think somewhere I, in our heads we're like, Bob didn't do nothing. I, she was just herself. And I she was trying to, to help her friend. I tried to think through that like that evening in the show and like summarize it in my head. And her night basically can be summed up as got dragged to a party she really didn't want to go to, got ignored by the person who dragged her there left when everyone started having sex other than her and then got murdered by a monster yeah oh you forgot also mutilated herself trying to do a stupid beer shot oh also mutilated herself trying to do a stupid beer shot she really didn't have a good night yeah so so her last thoughts were annoyance as well as all that pain yeah. she was dealing with there's a missing episode somewhere which is Barb's horrible evening yeah. <laughs> Barb's bogus adventure <laughs> indeed <laughs> 
Uh, is there anything else about episode two before we go to episode three? Because Barb I... actually does get snatched at the beginning of episode yeah. three when all the ash is falling down. I had some episode two things I wanted to say about okay. Joyce. Um, yeah. yeah. Joyce totally, like, she very much leans into the fact her kid has been kidnapped in order to get what she thinks she needs to get her kid back. Mm-hmm. She somewhat takes advantage of that situation, I feel like. Or, I felt weirdly uncomfortable watching the scene where Joyce is... She goes into work and she's like, I'm having the phone for free and two weeks advance on my wage. That's happening. And some Skittles. And some Skittles. Yeah, it, <laughs> it left me feeling like... I get the intention is to be like, she's desperate to get her kid back and her kid spoke to her through the phone so she needs a new phone and she needs to take time to track down her kid and she was you know living on such a shoestring budget that she couldn't afford to like take time off and still have disposable income to search for her kid but it does feel like the way she does it feels really manipulative yeah like it feels like she is just leaning into my kid got kidnapped do the thing for me but at the same time, you also got to reckon on the amount of sleep she hasn't had for days. Uh, at that stage, you just have uh, during like that level of crisis and grief and not sleeping. You just don't have patience to be diplomatic yeah. with people. No, I... It just comes down to the look. Yeah. I have got the worst shit in the world to deal with. Give me this one thing easily, please. Like, but she's I, not even yeah. begging. She's like, Ugh. well, yeah, but again, then... like. I get why she did it, but it's. I think. I think the part of it that bothered me is where, like, the boss has agreed to give her the phone and a week's advance, and then she's like, "I think I need two weeks advance." And the boss says, "Like, look, I'm supposed to pay someone else." And presumably, the end of that sentence would have been, "I'm supposed to pay them their wage that they're due to get, like, this time." I'm. I'm trying to not pay the rest of the people late, and she just powers through that and it's like nope two weeks I think that's the point that bothered me is where she like blasts through someone else who's maybe not going to get paid now because of her choice Mm. I I agree and it did it made me feel slightly edgy as well but I think it it kind of is there to emphasize the idea that this is it's it's her desperation. It's the I will use whatever tools are available to me to get my boy back, and if that involves me having to manipulate people, then so be it. I felt she can't, she brings up the fact that you know she's been working there. I don't remember how many years it was, but she'd uh, been working ten years. there. Ten, uh, yes. yes, I think yeah, ten years. She'd been working there ten years, and she had never taken a sick day. And I believe she says you know she's you know if people call in, she always comes or whatever. And I'm going to guess that she's put up with a lot of shit for, with hmm. this job. And I'm going to guess that it's, you know, if she's been there 10 years, that's a loyal employee. I mean, that's a point you can ask more. I, and I agree. The way she asked it, yeah, was maybe a little manipulative, but maybe in the past when she's tried, you know, to maybe get a little extra time off or, you know, that sort of thing. Maybe it didn't go anywhere. She's always been weaseled. Yeah. 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 But um, the the guy she's asking is not playing it like he every single time goes, oh, God, I'm being asked for something. I can't allow that. Yeah. So that's what creates that tension, I think. Mm. Yeah. Um, Yeah. 
I think the the only other thing we didn't really touch on for episode two is all of the th- all of the kids discover that Eleven has has the power to shut doors with her mind. Mm-hmm. Yes, and that that's this a big is something thing. that. All three of the kids witness this, so like I think it's important to mention that because there are times that are going to come up where they doubt she has psychic powers. Mm-hmm. They do all witness her repeatedly slam a door with her mind. Oh, the I love the use of the Dungeons and Dragons board to illustrate where Will is. Yes, um, mm. the, yeah, the, that's on my notes too. <laughs> yeah, so like, and it's. Uh, it's the, uh, the the growing list of things that demonstrate she has some knowledge of Will. She points him out on the picture. When they go to the Dungeons & Dragons board, she picks up his character piece without it being pointed out to her, flips the board over, and places him slap dab in the middle of the nothing. Nice. And it's just... It's such a good... It's such a strong visual way of putting across information with very little words drawing back to something that was like the very first shot we got of these characters and very literally flipping it on its head, flipping it upside down. Mm, It is such a good moment of like, oh, Will is still in the world, just in this dark, lonely mirror of the world fighting the Demi-Gorkon. Now, before we go, because Alastair's not going to be in the second part... I just want to give him the floor to summarise anything he has left to say about the whole series. Um, th- there are a couple of things, yeah. I mean, focusing on, on three, first of all. Uh, the visual in three of the Christmas lights and of Joyce turning her home into a way to communicate with her kid is, yeah. for me, really the point where this show takes a very definite step forward out of the huge kind of network of influences that drive those first couple of episodes and goes, no, we're actually our own thing as well. I, I, th- that visual fascinates me. It fascinates me because it's so low-tech and because it's Joyce grabbing all the Christmas lights from her place of work and literally destroying her home as a means of trying to communicate with her kid. And it's all... It, it's really the point for me which drives home the fact that the show is pre-internet. I, I remember years and years ago uh, doing an interview with Charles Strauss where he pointed out that we were uh, about to reach a point where it would be almost impossible to get lost because of smartphone technology. And at the time, I, I was like, and when will we have food pills, Charles? Uh, <laughs> and of course, now I navigate around places I've never been before from the magical piece of smoked glass in my hand. So... This episode, arguably more than any other, is really the one where they actually make a feature out of the setting as something other than like a nostalgia gland to be milked. You know, uh, it's this really the setting is like, as a character. Yes, exactly. That 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 is exactly it. This story can only happen in this way at this time, which I I really really dig. Like I, like I said earlier, narrative architecture is kind of is, is kind of my thing um, because of, of the, the RPG stuff. And there's there's a really nice touch with this episode that someone spotted with season two, which is every single chapter title is the something aside from one in both seasons. And this is that one where the previous episode is uh, the weirdo on Maple Street. This is Holly Jolly, and I I really like that idea of structure or signifier you know i mean i i 
finished growing up around the X-Files, so I was one of those people who would watch that ridiculous low-tech credit sequence, watch or trust no one to be replaced by, you know, the words booger booger in Latin and go, oh, shit's on this week. Oh, you know. <laughs> <laughs> so I'm, I, I really like stuff like that. Um, regarding episode four, the thing that absolutely makes that work is also the thing that maybe doesn't make the ending work, which is how real it feels. And, I mean, this, as is so often the case when when you guys put a group of us together like this, it it really kind of ties into all the points which everyone's made up to now uh, about Joyce's potentially wobbly ethics, uh, about the fact that the kids watch Eleven slam a door with her mind, but don't quite, but still have trouble buying into the fact that she has powers. You know, the fact that the Department of Energy have a laboratory on the outskirts of a small town in Indiana, which has a doorway to hell in the basement that they don't know how to turn <laughs> off. You know, and how all of this is just barreling along as this fantastic 1980s lark, and then the dead body of a small boy is pulled out of a, of, of a sinkhole, mm. and the sequence where his body is pulled out and the way that the episode just kind of grinds to a halt as slowly these people realize what's happening is just beautifully handled right up until the point where it isn't. And if there is a moment for me where this show rolls the dice and just prays that it comes up as anything other than a one, it's the, by the way, this that this incredibly convincing-looking dummy of Will's body is a dummy. Full of K-pop. Full of K-pop. <laughs> Stuffing! <laughs> and, I mean, going yes. back to the point that you made uh, about how, you know, um, Evil Doctor Exposition is, is kind of a villain-shaped hole, uh, I would be very happy if at some point in Season 2 we happened to walk past a room in the uh, Hawkins, Indiana Department of Energy facility which is full of K-pop-filled bodies of dead children from the town. You know, just in case. <laughs> Tech was not that good in those days for, for creating realistic-looking bodies. I mean, we've seen the thing, bubblegum, apparently. So, you know, I, I, I think the emotional element of that is, is really, really successful. And I think it's maybe the one point, for me at least, where... That really interesting diversion that we get could maybe have afforded to have gone for a little longer. Mm. And also, the wheels really do shriek when it, it kind of comes back on course. Uh, regarding the back end, I mean, you, you, you've got folks who are going to come in and talk all about 5 through 8. You, you don't need me talking about that as well. Beyond one, one, one point which I would make, which is... This almost doesn't feel like an American or an English TV show. To me, this almost feels like a telenovela. Um, just in case this is something you haven't come across, telenovelas are a Mexican model, which is essentially a season-long serial, which will do tell a very, very long story arc and then bring it all into land at the end. They are... Pick a theme, pick a genre, there will be a telenovela about it. And any of you who've seen Sensei, uh, I seem to remember that Leto has done some work on them. It's referenced quite heavily at one point. Um, and the reason why it reminds me of that is 
because it has a beginning, a middle, and an end. And the end feels very definitive, but very open-ended in a way that I've only really seen Netflix pull off. And I've seen them do it about four times now. This was the first. Uh, there is a fantastic, really weird and smartly grumpy Canadian time travel show called Travelers, which they've co-financed, which does the same thing, where if it gets cancelled after season one, which it hasn't been, it's a complete story, but there's also somewhere to go for season two. Um, the OA notionally does it. I mean, whether or not the OA can land a second season is a two-hour discussion all by itself. <laughs> but I think it's really indicative, as well as the way this, the show is shot, of this growing shift in aesthetic that you're starting to see through streaming services, where Netflix builds shows very in a very specific way, and they look a very specific way, and it feels different. And now they've started to bring kind of U.S. Uh, standard network and cable shows online to the service in the UK as well. You can really see how different it is because something like Stranger Things is an event. It's like the four-hour, mostly awful it miniseries that showed in the very early 1920s. <laughs> it's one of those things that you can just drop and go, oh, this is a thing. It's a complete thing that has edges. I don't have to watch 17 years of this to get any. And I really respect that. And I'm I think the best way I can describe it is flooded with relief that this is a format that's really starting to work as well as it is, and that they're doing so much really good genre fiction. Okay, so that is the end of part one, and we are going to lose Alistair between now and next week's episode. Not literally, um, but... <laughs> Christ, that's a terrible thing to say. He's now in the upside down. He's gone to the upside down, folks. We can't get him back unless we send a guy in with a cable. Remember that bit when the guy go- goes in with the cable and they try to pull him out? And there's a bunch of technicians wandering around, and like the cable is, is pulling, and it, it can't get him out. And they just sort of stand there looking at the cable. It's like, try and pull it. I don't know. Like, maybe show, like, two seconds that you actually care. But uh, they're just like, well, you know, Larry went in. He bit off more than he could chew there. And uh, kind of reminds me of that um, South Park episode of Imagination Land. I don't like it now when things remind me of South Park. It's annoying. Um, for obvious reasons. Right. So, we are going to finish now, and uh, we are saying goodbye to Alastair, who uh, was only able to come on for the first part. Alastair, where can people find your work if they want to uh, know more about you and, and see what stuff you do? Oh, all, all kinds of places. I am the host of Pseudopod, which you can find at pseudopod.org, which is a weekly horror fiction podcast. I also own Escape Artists, which publishes Pseudopod, Escape Pod, which does science fiction, Podcastle that does fantasy and Cast of Wonders that does YA and you can find those at escapepod.org podcastle.org and castofwonders.org I also write regular um, pop culture criticism and analysis for MYM Buzz Uh, I write essays for Tor.com and uh, my own website is my name which is alistairstewart.com I will spell that for you because there are so very, very many ways to not spell it. It's <laughs> A-L-A-S-D-A-I-R-S-T-U-A-R-T. Uh, and you can find me on Twitter at 
Alistair Stewart once again. I think I might put those in the notes to help people out actually, because uh, just a, a quick click away will uh, will definitely help if that's okay. That's fine. Given that um, one of the old one of the alternate spellings of my name ultimately became a relatively major character in a friend's book. Oh, nice. Yeah, Alcibiere, it turns out, actually has a certain kind of weird, slightly elven ring to it. It worked really well. <laughs> okay, well, thank you all so, so much for coming on this one. You've managed to make it way better than we could have just yakking away with each other about it. Uh, and you brought your passion and your insight as we knew you would, because you're perfect, spot-on guests. Thank you very, very much, all of you. No worries. I'll be back tomorrow to keep spouting words. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So until next week, I've been Alex Shaw. I've been Sharon Shaw. And school's out. Mr. Clark. Oh. Hey there. How you boys holding up? We're in mourning. Man, these aren't real Nilla wafers. We were wondering if you had time to talk. We have some questions. A lot of questions. So you know how in Cosmos, Carl Sagan talks about other dimensions, like beyond our world? Yeah, sure. Theoretically. Right, theoretically. So, theoretically, how do we travel there? You guys have been thinking about Hugh Everett's many worlds interpretation, haven't you? Well, basically, there are parallel universes. Just like our world, but just infinite variations of it. Which means there's a world out there where none of this tragic stuff ever happened. Yeah, that's not what we're talking about. Oh. We were thinking of more of an evil dimension, like the Veil of Shadows. You know the Veil of Shadows? The echo of the material plane where necrotic and shadow magic. Yeah, exactly. If that did exist, a place like the Veil of Shadows, how would we travel there? Theoretically. Well. Picture an acrobat standing on a tightrope. And the tightrope is our dimension. And our dimension has rules. You can move forwards or backwards. But what if right next to our acrobat, there is a flea? Now, the flea can also travel back and forth, just like the acrobat, right? Right. Yeah. Here's where things get really interesting. The flea can also travel this way, along the side of the rope. He can even go underneath the rope. Upside down. down. Exactly. But we're not the flea, we're the acrobat. In this metaphor, yes, we're the acrobat. So we can't go upside down? No. Well, is there any way for the acrobat to get to the upside down? Well, you'd have to create a massive amount of energy, more than humans are currently capable of creating, mind you, to open up some kind of tear in time and space. And then... You create a doorway. Like a gate? Sure, like a gate. But again, this is all... Theoretical. But but what if this gate already existed? Well, if it did, I, I think we'd know. It would disrupt gravity, the magnetic field, our environment. Heck, it might even swallow us up whole. Science is neat, but I'm afraid it's not very forgiving.